tree appears over 290 times in the Bible. The word fruit appears over 210 times. The word branch over 100 times. Not to mention the hundreds of times that specific trees are mentioned in the Bible, specific tree species like palm and Ikea and terebinth and willow and sycamore and figs and olives and pomegranates and many, many more. The biblical authors were kind of obsessed with trees. Next to God and humans, trees are the most mentioned living thing in the Bible. They're mentioned more than animals. Some type of tree reference is made more than animals are mentioned in Scripture. Trees are on the very first page of the Bible and on the very last page. And at this point, you might be like, who cares? Like, I don't care that there's trees in the Bible. Like, this seems like a good topic to bring up at that stuffy dinner party where everybody's discussing the New Yorker article and you're like, I don't read the New Yorker, I don't know what to say. Hey, did you know there's a bunch of trees in the Bible? You know, it's like something to try to make you fit in. Um, why should you care about trees in the Bible? If you're like Darby and I, you're tired or you're discouraged or you're depressed, you're exhausted or heartbroken, and the thought of researching the Bible's weird fascination with trees doesn't sound like it's gonna help you where you are hurting. Um, at the beginning of the year, every year, I sit down and I pray and I read and I research and I'm like, what am I going to talk about this year at Horizon? And I jot down some ideas and I write out some outlines for sermons. And after Easter, I plan to talk about trees and how more and more scholars are getting interested in why the biblical authors were so obsessed with having to write out this first message about trees. I'm like, I don't care about trees. I don't care about the fact that the Bible talks about trees. I don't care that scholars are interested in the unique ways that trees show up in the story of God and man. And so I thought about just teaching about something else, but I started reading through some of these passages that I jotted down, how trees show up at the most important stories, at the most critical moments of the human and divine story in the Bible, and how each time there is this promise from God. And I found, as I started studying these tree moments where these promises were given in and around trees, promises from God to hurting people in moments of weakness and pain, I began to find that it was inspiring me and encouraging me and giving me life. So, we're doing a series on trees and the unique ways that they show up in the Bible. But what we're really doing is a series on the nature and the promises of God and how trees remind us of that. Trees are everywhere, they're all around us all the time, and I think they are signposts pointing our eyes to the heavens, pointing our eyes to God. It is estimated that there are three trillion trees on the planet. Forests take up 30% of the Earth's surface, and I think the abundance of trees should be a constant reminder of the promises of God. The very first tree we're going to look at today is right at the beginning of the human story in Genesis. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, and then 15 through 17. Now, the Lord God, Lord God is uh, the way we translate into English, the name of God, Yahweh. So it's now Yahweh had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And then Yahweh made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 15, and Yahweh took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And Yahweh commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat it, you will certainly die. Now, 
This story is debated. If you're like, man, I'm just checking out Christianity, I'm watching online, and I don't buy in this whole story about humans and a talking snake, and if that's where you're going, Alex, you've already lost me. Uh, this story is debated by scholars about whether or not Adam and Eve were real people or merely ideas to convey a real event. Geneticists do argue for a single couple starting point for the human race. But there are clues in the text that this is a poetic explanation of the beginning. The Hebrew word translated Adam or Adam in Hebrew means mankind. And the Hebrew word translated Eve means life. So this is a story about mankind and life. I was raised to take this as a literal story about the first man and woman. And I think that's a great way to take it. But if you struggle to reconcile this story with science, with your own internal logic, I don't think it dramatically matters. You're not going to miss what I'm saying today. The story is still conveying something true. At the heart of the garden were two trees, the tree of life and the tree of knowing good from bad. Our English translations often say the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but that's not a great translation of the Hebrew. It was not the knowledge of good and evil, but the Hebrew word isn't used for evil. It's more like what's good or what's bad, what's tasty or what's unpleasant. What's poisonous versus what's healthy? It's more like the tree of having wisdom, being able to recognize the best path versus the worst path. And this is critical to the story of the Bible, as we'll see in just a minute. The second tree, however, mentioned here was the tree of life. Dr. Tim Mackey, an Old Testament scholar, says that the tree of life is a picture of the power and presence of God himself. Here's a quote from him. So is this tree of life some kind of magical tree? Remember, we see in Genesis 1 and 2 that God is the author of all life, and trees are potent images of God giving the gift of self-regeneration to his creation. Knowing this, the reader should know that the tree of life cannot be magical in the sense of offering its own life to the eater. Rather, God is the giver of life, and the tree at the center of the temple garden, proximity to the tree, is significant in the sense that it brings one in proximity to the author of life. He's talking like an Old Testament scholar, but what he's saying is the tree of life is a picture of coming into the life-giving presence of God. At the heart of the garden, the first, the first home for the humans, there was a critical choice between going to God for wisdom and life or taking wisdom for ourselves, choosing a path of life or a path of of death. Regardless what you think about this story, whether you think it was literal, play-by-play -play fact, or whether you think it's more like presenting true themes, at the center of your life is this exact same choice. A choice between looking to God for wisdom and life or trying to find it or take it for yourself. And at critical moments in all of our stories, when we're standing before the tree of life, we have chosen to do what we think is right instead of doing what God says is right, and the result has been destructive for ourselves, for others around us, and for the very world that we call home. And we know this about ourselves, right? Like, this isn't a big surprise. Humans like to do things themselves. They don't like to ask for help, whether it's divine or just their neighbor. We have this section in our bookstores called self-help. Why? Because I don't want to go to somebody else for help. I want to do it myself. Like when I don't know how to do something here at the art center, I do not go to another employee and say, help me with this. I Google it. I look at YouTube. I do it myself without asking for help because I don't need them. I can do it myself, right? We would prefer to help ourselves rather than ask for help. There's tons of memes that say men would rather 
and then they say something outlandish, then go to therapy. And I've seen ones like, men would rather memorize every fact about World War II than go to therapy. One of my favorites is, men would rather build a Death Star than go to therapy. Um, can you imagine if the Jedi Council's insurance plan had had therapy for Anakin Skywalker? Think about all the grief it would have saved the galaxy if Anakin had just gone to therapy instead of building a Death Star. Therapy is admitting I need someone else. At the heart of the American ideal is an individualistic belief that we don't need other people, that we don't need God, that we can do it ourselves. And thousands of years ago, long before there was America, long before you and I were here, Jewish scribes wrote down the story, and it perfectly encapsulates our modern human condition. We're standing before two trees, and we keep wanting to choose the tree that says, I don't need God, I can do it on my own. And the rest of the biblical story is about people trying to get back to the tree of life because humans realize that without God, when people try to make it on their own without community, without asking for help, it always ends badly. It results in toxic, abusive relationships, and we see injustice, and we see war over and over again in the story. Selfish people hurting themselves and everyone around them. Deep in the roots of each of our souls, deep down inside of us, is a hole that aches for the presence of God. And yet each of us keep choosing death instead of life. J.R.R. Tolkien says, every story is really one story. The story of Eden lost and the story of Eden longed for. And that's the rest of the Bible. If you haven't read it, if you've read just this passage here in Genesis and you haven't read anything else, I can sum it up for you. The story goes on and humans keep choosing the tree of taking knowledge for themselves rather than relying on a life-giving relationship with God. But in the midst of the chaos that follows as Adam and Eve chose to take wisdom for themselves instead of receiving it as a gift from God, God makes a unique promise that from the woman would come a snake crusher who would restore this relationship between God and man. And the passage uses a really unique tree analogy. Depending on your translation, some translations have tried to like uh, change the Hebrew word here to make it more understanding, but really the Hebrew word is for seed, which is all ties into this tree analogy that's going on all throughout scripture. Genesis chapter three, verse 15, listen to the verse. I will put conflict between you and the woman between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head, but you will strike his heel. Have you ever read that passage and thought, man, that's a weird way to say that, God. Like, why is he using this weird tree analogy? He's talking about seeds, like trees. Every time we see an acorn or an olive or a pine cone, I have pine cones all over today that are from the art center here, we're to think about the promise of a snake crusher who's coming to restore the proximity of God to man. The promise of access back to the presence of God. What happens to seeds? Seeds are scattered. It looks like they have died. They are buried in the ground and then out of the darkness bursts new life. That's exactly what Jesus did, the snake crusher who restores our relationship to God. And the rest of the Old Testament can be summed up like this. Story after story, men and women rise up, 
and they have encounters with God, and you think this must be the seed that is going to grow a new tree of life. It's going to create a new way to experience the presence of God that was lost in Eden. And over and over again, at a critical moment in the story, every one of their stories, they choose their wisdom over the wisdom of God. And it happens over and over and over again. Abraham comes along and has this encounter with God, and you're like, man, he's going to be the seed from which grows the new tree of life, so humans will have be able to encounter the presence of God again, and he fails. He chooses his wisdom. He takes his wisdom instead of relying on God. And Moses and David, and it goes on and on. It's like a repeat of Genesis chapter 3. That's the entire Old Testament, a repeat of Genesis chapter 3. People keep trying to take for themselves instead of going to God. The tree of life is within sight, and then they eat from the tree of knowing good from bad for themselves. And it happens over and over and over again until Jesus. Here's what Jesus says in John chapter 15. I like how this version puts it. John 15 verses 5 through 8. I am the trunk, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. What picture did Jesus use to describe the abundant life that he offered and the presence and proximity to God that he offered as becoming his student? He says, I'm like a tree, and you're like a branch that's growing out of my trunk. In Jesus and his life and teachings, through his life and death, resurrection and ascension, we can experience the presence of of God. As his disciples, students of how he lived and loved, we are connected back into the tree of life. When we celebrate communion, when we take the bread and drink the juice, juice, we remember that because of his body and because of his blood, because of his life and his death, we can experience the presence of God. We can have communion with God again. Over the last few weeks, Darby and I have cried out for God's presence because honestly, we don't know how to go on unless God shows up and heals the brokenness inside of us. The Bible says that God is near to the brokenhearted, but in our brokenness, we feel so alone. And maybe you feel like that today. Maybe you're not sure how you're going to go on. Maybe life hasn't turned out like you hoped and like you dreamed. So how do we experience the presence of God, the tree of life, when it feels like our life is a wildfire burning out of control? Notice Jesus said we need to remain in him. Experiencing the presence of God isn't about God moving around and us having to chase him. Trunks of trees don't move very often. It's about us, many times, breaking off from the trunk, being so busy, and our lives being so noisy, we cannot see him and we cannot hear him. God speaks in silence. God's presence is felt in stillness. Perhaps the most important church, that, uh, the most important message that the modern American church can share right now is that the abundant life, the life of human flourishing that we all desire is not found in doing more or getting more. Being busy makes us feel important, but being busy actually distracts us from what is most important. Because God is not found in more. God is found where you are and where I am when we slow down and sit still. At Horizon, we encourage people to follow the spiritual disciplines of Jesus. We have a whole guide up on our website. I'm having 
physical copies printed out as well, so they'll be at our connection table soon. We believe that the spiritual disciplines of Jesus, spiritual practices that he taught about and lived out, will help us experience God. We think these build our spiritual muscles so we can become like Jesus and do what he did. But these practices of things like Sabbath and silence and solitude and sacrifice also usher us into the presence of God. We be with Jesus, we become like Jesus, so that we can do what Jesus did. Now, when I'm hurting, the last thing I want to do is sit still, to slow down, to sit quietly, because when I do that, it's going to force me to confront my hurt, to deal with my grief, to face my trauma. Um, But when we run from our trauma, it doesn't go away. It's not just like, if you run far enough, you can get away from it. What happens is it begins to leak out into our life in a thousand different ways, in a thousand different places. No one wants to wade into their pain, but avoiding it doesn't make it go away. And facing the reality of what you're feeling is where we find God. We will not find God running from reality. We will not find God trying to numb ourselves to tragedy through entertainment. Dallas Willard used to say, God cannot bless the life you wished you had. He can only bless the life you have. You have to be realistic about the life that you're living if you want to encounter God. So what do we do to begin to eat from the tree of life, to begin to experience again the presence of God because of Jesus? I have three suggestions to leave us with this morning. First, this week, take a walk in the woods. Find a wooded area, take a walk in the woods. Take a walk in a path or a trail. In Japanese culture, there is a practice of forest bathing or shinrin-yoku. Shinrin in Japanese means forest and yoku means bath. In shinrin-yoku, people will go to a forest and they will either sit down or they will walk or they will spend time in the atmosphere of a forest, taking in the forest through their senses. Now, they've done scientific studies of this as a result of walking around trees and breathing in the smells of nature and listening to the call of birds. They've seen real medical changes in scientific studies. The forest bathing program in Japan significantly reduced the pulse rate of people who did it, significantly increased the score for vigor, and decreased the scores for depression, fatigue, anxiety, and confusion. It's almost like humans were made to walk in in and among forests and interact with trees. It's almost like we were designed for that, like that was our first home or something. Take an hour or two this week, go to a park or trail, leave your phone in the car, try to get as many of your senses as possible activated in a wooded space, sniff flowers, dip your toes in a stream, feel the sun and the wind, listen for the animals, and above all, invite the Holy Spirit of God to meet with you and fill you. Second, sit silently. This one will be a lot harder. Going to the, uh, to the woods or to the forest or a trail, you're going to come away and you're going to be like, that was great. I enjoyed that. This one's going to be a lot harder. Our culture has trained us to be uncomfortable with silence. And just to be honest, silence can be dangerous. It is where our worst fears take form in our minds. It is where the enemy attacks, but it is also the space where God speaks. The biblical writers describe the voice of God as a still small voice or as a whisper. The most powerful being in the universe doesn't feel the need to shout. 
Emptying our schedules, quieting both our lips and our agendas creates space to hear and encounter God. Ancient Christians would go to the wilderness to sit quietly and pray, and they saw this as twofold, both a way to hear from God, but also as a way to combat the devil, because when you get quiet, the enemy certainly tries to attack. They didn't just hear the voice of encouragement and love when they got quiet. They also heard the voice of the accuser. And some of us keep our minds so busy and so distracted because we're so scared of hearing what our mind might say or what the enemy might say that we miss out on what God might say. So set aside some time this week. Turn off your phone. Clear some space in your schedule so you're not running from one thing to the next. God's presence reveals himself in our margin, in our rest. When we begin to feel the pain of your grief and failures and disappointments, because when you sit still, you will. Don't distract yourself or run away. Craft a lament to God. Pour out your heart to God and press on. We won't find him running from our pain. We'll find him in our pain, sustaining us through our pain. And finally, I want to encourage you with a practice that I've just started the last few weeks as we've been processing through this praying a breath prayer, and I'm going to walk you through one today, but I found this incredibly helpful when I'm anxious or when I'm hurting or when I'm afraid or when I just feel like I can't go on anymore. Um, a breath prayer is where you pray something as you breathe in and you pray something as you breathe out, and it's just a way of involving your body and your spirit together. We don't have time to talk about it all today, but the word spirit in scripture comes from our word for breath. And so there's a connection there. There's something important, important happening when our bodies and our spirits work together. So we're going to end this morning with a breath prayer together, okay? And you can just pray quietly where you are. But the first thing we're going to do is we're going to say Jesus as we breathe in. And then as we breathe out, say, I need you. Okay, and then Jesus, breathe in. And as you breathe out, come near to me. And then once again, Jesus. And as you breathe out, give me rest. And then finally, Jesus, I abide in you. And at the moments where I've been so broken that I can't go on, I've just prayed this over and over again. And I've felt God's presence and i hope that you feel it as you pray it this week as you walk among the trees as you sit silently and wrestle through your pain jesus thank you that you don't leave us alone and many times i've felt alone and i've felt afraid and i've felt defeated and crushed god thank you for not abandoning me and we ask, Lord, that you will make your presence known to us this week. To Darby and I, as we wade through this and we wade for it, for everyone here, because there's not a person here who hasn't been touched by pain or tragedy or disappointment, by embarrassment, by fear, by anxiety. And so, God, we ask that you will make your presence known. ever for us. God, reassure us that you love us. And